Chapter Thirteen of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Orthodoxy. Philosophy is either eternal or it is not philosophy. A cosmic philosophy is not constructed to fit a man. A cosmic philosophy is constructed to fit a cosmos. A man can no more possess a private religion than he can possess a private sun and moon. Introduction to the Book of Job Because orthodoxy is supremely Chesterton's own history of his mind, more must be said of it than of his other published works. For this book is the life of a man, and a man is his mind. The notebook shows him thinking and feeling in his youth exactly on the lines that he recalls, but they were only lines, in fact an outline. The richness of life was needed, the richness of thought to turn the outline into the masterpiece. No man, not even Chesterton, could have written orthodoxy at the age of twenty. It was sufficiently remarkable that he should have written it at thirty-five. But only a man who had been thinking along those lines at twenty, and much earlier, could have written it at all. For the book is, as he says, a sort of slovenly autobiography. It is not so much an argument for orthodoxy as the story of how one man discovered orthodoxy as the only answer to the riddle of the universe. In an interview given shortly after its publication, Gilbert told of a temptation that had once been his and which he had overcome, almost before he realized he had been tempted. The temptation was to become a prophet like all the men in heretics, by emphasizing one aspect of truth and ignoring the others. To do this would, he knew, bring him a great crowd of disciples. He had a vision, which constantly grew wider and deeper, of the many-sided unity of truth but he saw that all the prophets of the age from walt whitman and schopenhauer to wells and shaw had become so by taking one side of the truth and making it all of the truth it is so much easier to see and magnify a part than laboriously to strive to embrace the whole a sage feels too small for life and a fool too large for it not that he condemned as fools the able men of his generation for wells he had a great esteem for shaw a greater whitman he had in his youth almost idolized but increasingly he recognized even whitman as representing an idea that was too narrow because it was only an aspect there was not room in whitman's philosophy for some of the facts he had already discovered and he felt he had not yet completed his journey he must not for the sake of being a prophet and having a following sacrifice i will not say a truth already found but a truth that might still be lurking somewhere. He could not be the architect of his own intellectual universe any more than he had been the creator of sun, moon, and earth. God and humanity made it, he said of the philosophy he discovered, and it made me. He had begun in boyhood, as we have seen, by realizing that the world as depicted in fairy tales was saner and more sensible than the world is seen by the intellectuals of his own day. These men had lost the sense of life's value. They spoke of the world as a vast place governed by iron laws of necessity. 
chesterton felt in it the presence of will while the mere thought of vastness was to him about as cheerful a conception as that of a jail that should with its cold empty passages cover half the county these expanders of the universe had nothing to show us except more than the infinite corridors of space lit by ghastly suns and empty of all that was divine Quote, these people professed that the universe was one coherent thing but they were not fond of the universe but i was frightfully fond of the universe and i wanted to address it by diminutive i often did so and it never seemed to mind actually and in truth i did feel that these dim dogmas of vitality were better expressed by calling the world small than by calling it large for about infinity there was a sort of carelessness which was the reverse of the fierce and pious care which i felt touching the pricelessness and the peril of life they showed only a dreary waste but i felt a sort of sacred thrift for economy is far more romantic than extravagance to them stars are an unending income of halfpence but i felt about the golden sun and the silver moon as a schoolboy feels if he has one sovereign and one shilling these subconscious convictions are best hit off by the color and tone of certain tales thus i have said that stories of magic alone can express my sense that life is not only a pleasure but a kind of eccentric privilege i may express this other feeling of cosmic coziness by allusion to another book always read in boyhood robinson crusoe which i read about this time and which owes its eternal vivacity to the fact that it celebrates the poetry of limits nay even the wild romance of prudence crusoe is a man on a small rock with a few comforts just snatched from the sea the best thing in the book is simply the list of things saved from the wreck the greatest of poems is an inventory i really felt the fancy may seem foolish as if all the order and number of things were the romantic remnant of crusoe's ship that there are two sexes and one son was like the fact that there are two guns and one axe it was poignantly urgent that none should be lost but somehow it was rather fun that none could be added the trees and the planets seemed like things saved from the wreck and when i saw the matterhorn i was glad that it had not been overlooked in the confusion i felt economical about the stars as if they were sapphires they are called so in milton's eden i hoarded the hills for the universe is a single jewel and while it is natural cant to talk of a jewel as peerless and priceless of this jewel it is literally true this cosmos is indeed without peer and without price for there cannot be another one Unquote. orthodoxy chapter four pages one twelve to fifteen a fragment of an essay on hans anderson that cannot be later than the age of seventeen shows gilbert trying to shape part of what he calls here the ethics of elfland but a large part was as he says subconscious in this chapter he sums up the results of musings about the universe begun so long ago small wonder that he had seemed to sleep over his lessons while he was seeing these visions and dreaming these dreams which after every effort to tell them he still knows remains half untold Quote, the attempt to utter the unutterable things these are my ultimate attitudes towards life the soils for the seeds of doctrine these in some dark way i thought before i could write and felt before i could think 
and we may proceed more easily afterwards. I will roughly recapitulate them now. I felt in my bones first that this world does not explain itself. It may be a miracle with a supernatural explanation. It may be a conjuring trick with a natural explanation. But the explanation of the conjuring trick, if it is to satisfy me, will have to be better than the natural explanations I have heard. The thing is magic, true or false. Second, I came to feel as if magic must have a meaning, and meaning must have someone to mean it. There was something personal in the world, as in a work of art. Whatever it meant, it meant violently. Third, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design, in spite of its defects, such as dragons. Fourth, that the proper form of thanks to it is some form of humility and restraint. We should thank God for beer and burgundy, by not drinking too much of them. We owed also an obedience to whatever made us. And last and strangest, there had come into my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. Man had saved his good as Crusoe saved his goods. He had saved them from a wreck. All this I felt, and the age gave me no encouragement to feel it. And all the time I had not even thought of Christian theology. Unquote. Orthodoxy, Chapter 4, pages 155-6 to six. This theology came with the answers to all the tremendous questions asked by life. Here the convert has one great advantage over the Catholic brought up in the faith. Most of us hear the answers before we have asked the questions. Hence, intellectually, we lack what G.K. calls the soils for the seeds of doctrine. It is nearly impossible to understand an answer to a question you have not formulated. And without the sense of urgency that an insistent question brings, many people do not even try. All the years of his boyhood and early manhood, Chesterton was facing the fundamental questions and hammering out his answers. At first, he had no thought of Christianity as even a possible answer. Growing up in a world called Christian, he fancied it a philosophy that had been tried and found wanting. It was only as he realized that the answers he was finding for himself always fitted into, were always confirmed by, the Christian view of things, that he began to turn towards it. He sees a good deal of humor in the ways he strained his voice, in a painfully juvenile attempt to utter his new truths, only to find that they were not his and were not new, but were part of an eternal philosophy. In the chapter called The Flag of the World, he tells of the moment when he discovered the confirmation and reinforcing of his own speculations by the Christian theology. The point at which this came concerned his feelings about the men of his youth, who labeled themselves optimist and pessimist. Both, he felt, were wrong. It must be possible at once to love and to hate the world, to love it more than enough to get on with it, to hate it enough to get it on. And the Church solved this difficulty by her doctrine of creation and of original sin. Quote, God had written not so much a poem, but rather a play, a play he had planned as perfect, but which had necessarily been left to human actors and stage managers who had since made a great mess of it, unquote. As to that mess, the Christian could be as pessimist as he liked. As to the original design, he must be optimist, 
for it was his work to restore it st george could still fight the dragon if he were as big as the world he could yet be killed in the name of the world Quote, and then followed an experience impossible to describe it was as if i had been blundering about since my birth with two huge and unmanageable machines of different shapes and without apparent connection the world and the christian tradition i had found this hole in the world the fact that one must somehow find a way of loving the world without trusting it somehow one must love the world without being worldly i found this projecting feature of christian theology like a sort of hard spike the dogmatic insistence that god was personal and had made a world separate from himself the spike of dogma fitted exactly into the hole in the world it had evidently been meant to go there and then the strange thing began to happen when once these two parts of the two machines had come together one after another all the other parts fitted and fell in with an eerie exactitude i could hear bolt after bolt over all the machinery falling into its place with a kind of click of relief having got one part right all the other parts were repeating that rectitude as clock after clock strikes noon instinct after instinct was answered by doctrine after doctrine or to vary the metaphor i was like one who had advanced into a hostile country to take one high fortress and when that fort had fallen the whole country surrendered and turned solid behind me the whole land was lit up as it were back to the first fields of my childhood all those blind fancies of boyhood which in the fourth chapter i had tried in vain to trace on the darkness became suddenly transparent and sane i was right when i felt that i would almost rather say that grass was the wrong color than say that it must by necessity have been that color it might verily have been any other my sense that happiness hung in the crazy thread of a condition did not mean something when all was said it meant the whole doctrine of the fall even those dim and shapeless monsters of notions which i have not been able to describe much less defend step quietly into their places like colossal caryatides of the creed the fancy that the cosmos was not vast and void but small and cosy had a fulfilled significance now for anything that is a work of art must be small in sight of the artist to god the stars might be only small and dear like diamonds and my haunting instinct that somehow good was not merely a tool to be used but a relic to be guarded like the goods from crusoe's ship even that had been the wild whisper of something originally wise for according to christianity we were indeed the survivors of a wreck the crew of a golden ship that had gone down before the beginning of the world unquote. orthodoxy chapter five pages one forty two to forty four in the chapter called the paradoxes of christianity the richness of his mind is most manifest and in that chapter can best be seen what mr belloc meant when he told me chesterton's style reminded him of st augustine's talking over with an old schoolfellow of his list of books he had as we have seen drawn up for t p s weekly i discovered deep doubt as to whether gilbert would really have read these books as most of us understand reading combined with the conviction that he would have got out of them at a glance more than most of us by prolonged study i have certainly never known any one his equal at what the schoolboy calls degutting a book he did not seem to study an author 
yet he certainly knew him but it remained that his own mind reflecting and experiencing made of his own life his greatest storehouse so that in all this book there was as my father pointed out in the dublin review at the time an intensely original new light cast on the eternal philosophy about which so much had already been written the discovery specially needed perhaps for his own age was that christianity represented a new balance that constituted a liberation the ancient greek or roman had aimed at equilibrium by enforcing moderation and getting rid of extremes christianity made moderation out of the still crash of two impetuous emotions it got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious Quote, the more i considered christianity the more i felt that while it had established a rule and order the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild unquote. thus inside christianity the pacifist could become a monk and the warrior a crusader st francis could praise good more loudly than walt whitman and st jerome denounce evil more darkly than schopenhauer but both the motions must be kept in their place i remember how george wyndham laughed as he recited to us the paragraph where this idea reached its climax quote, and sometimes this pure gentleness and this pure fierceness met and justified their juncture the paradox of all the prophets was fulfilled and in the soul of st louis the line lay down with the lamb but remember that this text is too lightly interpreted it is constantly assumed especially by our tolstoyan tendencies that when the lion lies down with the lamb the lion becomes lamb-like but that is brutal annexation and imperialism on the part of the lamb that is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb the real problem is can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain its royal ferocity that is the problem the church attempted that is the miracle she achieved Unquote. Orthodoxy, Chapter 6, pages 178-79. to All this applied not only to the release of the emotions and development of all the elements that go to make up humanity, but even more to the truths of revelation. A heresy always means lopping off a part of the truth, and therefore ultimately a loss of liberty. Orthodoxy, in keeping the whole truth, safeguarded freedom and prevented any one of the great and devouring ideas she was teaching from swallowing any other truth this was the justification of councils of definitions even of persecutions and wars of religion that they had stood for the defence of reason as well as of faith they had stood to prevent the suicide of thought which must result if the exciting but difficult balance were lost that had replaced the classical moderation Quote, the church could not afford to swerve a hair's breadth on some things if she was to continue her great and daring experiment of irregular equilibrium let one idea become less powerful and some other idea would become too powerful it was no flock of sheep the christian shepherd was leading but a herd of bulls and tigers of terrible ideals and devouring doctrines each one of them strong enough to turn to a false religion and lay waste to the world remember that the church went in specifically for dangerous ideas she was a lion tamer the idea of birth through a holy spirit of the death of a divine being of the forgiveness of sins or the fulfillment of prophecies are ideas which any one can see 
need but a touch to turn them into something blasphemous or ferocious a sentence phrased wrong about the nature of symbolism would have broken all the best statues in europe a slip in the definitions might stop all the dances might wither all the christmas trees or break all the easter eggs doctrines had to be defined within strict limits even in order that man might enjoy general human liberties the church had to be careful if only that the world might be careless this is the thrilling romance of orthodoxy people have fallen into a foolish habit of speaking of orthodoxy as something heavy humdrum and safe there never was anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy it was sanity and to be sane is more dramatic than to be mad it was the equilibrium of a man behind madly rushing horses seeming to stoop this way and to sway that yet in every attitude having the grace of statuary and the accuracy of arithmetic the church in its early days went fierce and fast with any war-horse yet it is utterly unhistoric to say that she merely went mad along one idea like a vulgar fanaticism she swerved to the left and right so as exactly to avoid enormous obstacles she left on one hand the huge bulk of arianism buttressed by all the worldly powers to make christianity too worldly the next instant she was swerving to avoid an orientalism which would have made it too unworldly the orthodox church never took the tame course or accepted the conventions the orthodox church was never respectable it would have been easier to have accepted the earthly power of the arians it would have been easy in the calvinistic seventeenth century to fall into the bottomless pit of predestination it is easy to be a madman it is easy to be a heretic it is always easy to let the age have its head the difficult thing is to keep one's own it is always easy to be a modernist as it is easy to be a snob to have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of christendom that would indeed have been simple it is always simple to fall there are an infinity of angles at which one falls only one at which one stands to have fallen into any one of the fads from gnosticism to christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame but to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure and in my vision the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate the wild truth reeling but erect unquote. orthodoxy chapter six pages one eighty two to eighty five no quotation can adequately convey the wealth of thought in the book yet amazingly the times reviewer rebuked g k for substituting emotion for intellect partly on strength of a sentence in the chapter called the maniac quote, the madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason unquote the reviews when one reads them as a whole exactly confirm what wilford ward said in the dublin review that whereas he had regarded orthodoxy as a triumphant vindication of his own view that g k was a really profound thinker he found to his amazement that those who had thought him superficial held it as proof of theirs obviously with a man so much concerned with ultimates the place accorded to him in letters Will depend upon whether one agrees or disagrees with his conclusions in a country that is not catholic this consideration must affect the standing of any catholic thinker 
thus newman was considered by carlyle to have the brain of a moderate-sized rabbit yet by others his is counted the greatest mind of the century similarly arnold bennett could credit chesterton with only a second-class intellectual apparatus because he was a dogmatist to this chesterton replied in fancies versus facts quote, in truth there are only two kinds of people those who accept dogmas and know it and those who accept dogmas and don't know it my only advantage over the gifted novelist lies in my belonging to the former class unquote. if one grasps the catholic view of dogma the answer is satisfying if not the objector is left with his original objection as against chesterton as against newman and chesterton had the extra disadvantage of being a journalist famous for his jokes now moving in newman's unquestioned field of philosophy and theology it was in part the difficulty of convincing a man against his will these critics as wilford ward pointed out read superficially and looked only at the fooling the fantastic puns and comparisons ignoring the underlying deep seriousness and lines of thought that made him as it then seemed boldly rank chesterton with such writers as butler coleridge and newman taking as his text the saying truth can understand error but error cannot understand truth wilford ward called his article mr chesterton among the prophets he showed especially the curious confusion made in such comments as the one i have quoted from the times and made clearer what chesterton was really saying by a comparison with the illative sense of cardinal newman it is the usual difficulty of trying to express a partly new idea newman had coined an expression but it did not express all he meant still less all that chesterton meant yet it was difficult to use the word reason in this particular discussion without giving to it two different meanings for in two chapters the maniac and the suicide of thought chesterton was concerned to show that authority was needed for the defense of reason in a larger sense against its own power of self-destruction yet the maniac commits the suicide by excessive use of reason in the narrower sense Quote, he is not hampered by a sense of humor or by charity or by the dumb certainties of experience he is the more logical for losing certain sane affections he is the clean and well-lit prison of one idea he is sharpened to one painful point unquote. to chesterton it seemed that most of the modern religions and philosophies were like the argument by which a madman suffering from persecution mania proves that he is in a world of enemies it is complete it is unanswerable yet it is false the madman's mind quote, moves in a perfect but narrow circle the insane explanation is quite as complete as the sane one only it is not so large there is such a thing as a narrow universality there is such a thing as a small and cramped eternity you may see it in many modern religions unquote. philosophies such as materialism idealism monism all have in their explanations of the universe this quality of the madman's argument of covering everything and leaving everything out the materialist like the madman is quote, unconscious of the alien energies and the large indifference of the earth he is not thinking of the real things of the earth of fighting peoples or proud mothers or first love or fear upon the sea the earth is so very large and the cosmos is so very small unquote people sometimes say life is larger than logic when they want to dismiss logic but that was not chesterton's way he wanted logic 
he needed logic as part of the abundance of the mind's life as part of a much larger whole what was the word we are looking for it still for a use of the mind that included all these things logic and imagination mysticism and ecstasy and poetry and joy a use of the mind that could embrace the universe and reach upwards to god without losing its balance the mind must work in time yet it can reach out into eternity it is conditioned by space and can glimpse infinity the modern world has imprisoned the mind far more than the body it needed great open spaces and chesterton breaking violently out of prison looked around and saw how the church had given health to the mind by giving it space to move in and great ideas to move among chesterton the poet saw too that man is a poet and must therefore quote, get his head into heaven unquote. he needs mysticism and among her great ideas the church gives him mysteries End of chapter thirteen